Welcome to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. If you haven't already done so, go and listen to part one of our interview with Troy Denning. Then come back here and listen to part two. At the end of the of the prison pentad, you know, Tithian was still sort of interested in kind of becoming a sorcerer king and having the ability to grant spells and stuff like that. Where do you think that would have led had you had the opportunity to to write more novels? And and why didn't you write more novels back then? Mm-hmm. Um, well, to be honest, I think that that was kind of a business decision from the who the guy who was the managing editor of the department at that time of the book department mm-hmm. there's a guy named brian thompson and and um after bob's success and and margaret and tracy's success where they kind of became big names and were driving the line themselves uh-huh. um, you know and they had you know they get asked a lot of money ask for a lot more money and stuff uh-huh. i think that brian didn't want to have that happen again uh-huh. so instead of allowing me to write more dark sun novels and i would have loved to he decided to have other people write some Dark Sun novels mm-hmm. and and then shifted me off to write, I think it was Pages of Pain. Right. Planescape. At yeah. that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, he he kind of tried to to make me feel good about it because it was my first hardback book. but yeah. And it was a wonderful book. I mean, I learned so damn much writing that book. You can't believe it. So, you, you know, these detours come along in your life and at the time they seem like oh man somebody's you know like misdirecting me or doing something i'm not happy with mm-hmm. but uh you you go with what you have and what the what you can do make the best of it and and uh you know i learned so much writing pages of pain that i wouldn't i wouldn't change go back and change that if i could nice but that's the reason that i didn't write you know another trilogy of dark sun and just still be writing dark sun today hmm. um, where do you think you would have guided dark sun had you you know had you had the opportunity or maybe if you you know if that opportunity came again what you know what do you think maybe you would do with it well you know that's a really complex question and it's not you know normally if it's one you know normally an author can kind of just say oh this is what i would have done because this is what i was thinking about uh-huh. but when you're dealing with um, a, war, a game world mm-hmm. and one that was as, as successful as Dark Sun was and and the whole company that you know is moving in different directions and trying to accomplish different things um, you don't really have the luxury of, of controlling all of that yourself sure. mm-hmm. so you know it was basically I was shifted off of writing Dark Sun novels um, Basically, I think so that I didn't become too big. Um, yeah, and I think that that for Dark Sun was an unfortunate thing because it mm-hmm. meant, and and Tim became manager manager design. Mm-hmm. So, and then Mary was no longer with the book department. So mm-hmm. that meant that none of the original creators were there to kind of babysit and guide it, mm-hmm. and to keep it under their wing, and so. You know, it went off in other people's directions, mm-hmm. and you know, in the direction that other people had wanted to take it. 
and mm-hmm. that's not necessarily where Tim or I would have wanted to take it. But sure. it's a perfect legit, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to happen. It's just that's yeah. the nature of a corporate-owned property. Sure. Yeah, that had to be so, hard. Uh, did you did you kind of keep up on on any of you know any of the stuff that came later? You know, I would glance at it once in a while, and mm-hmm. there were some things that I thought were cool, and some things that I thought weren't. Sure. What uh, what were some of the things that you thought were cool? You know, the Thrake Cream Empire I thought was a, a neat thing to try. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna go ahead and uh, get into um, into some questions. I know we've, we're probably already about the hour mark, so uh, we'll try to we'll try to get through these quickly mm-hmm. so we don't keep you too long. But I'm I'm here as long as you guys need me. So <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that the extended. <laughs> <laughs> so Stuart Lynch asks. Uh, well, he, first he says uh, you guys are lining up, uh, really lining up Darks and Rosie. So we had you know we had Tim on and we had uh, Bill on, Bill Slavicsek, uh and then we've got you. So it's great and I'm hoping to get some more people. We'll, we'll see. Um, but he said, uh, I'm not sure if this is already out here, but here it goes. When you came up with the champions of Raja, did you intend for all of them to have changed names once they became sorcerer kings and queens? And if so, do you have design notes for any of the other champion cleansing warriors, uh, aliases such as Kalak? Well, that was one of those spontaneous things um, uh-huh. that occurred to me while I was writing the series. Okay. Um, and so all of the names that I made up were made up on the spot, you know, just just when I needed the name, I made it up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I was like, okay, what am I going to do with Sasha and Ryan? There's a cool place to introduce them and to tie them into this whole legend. Uh-huh. Uh, right. So that's kind of how that came to be. And because of the way it came to be, it was, you know, spontaneous. I hadn't sat down and worked it all out systematically. Gotcha. So on that same note, then, the, the Sorcerer Kings themselves, back when you were doing doing the box set, did you already have in mind the the sort of the Rajat storyline? Yeah. We had in mind the whole Boris is the dragon who, you know, is demanding this tribute to to keep himself powerful. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, and I may not be recalling this correctly, but as I recall, we realized that there had to be a reason he was trying to keep himself powerful. And that that was because he was imprisoning, you know, somebody from who was even more powerful mm-hmm. from from uh, Dark Sun's history. Sure. But I don't um, think we'd worked out, you know, all of the details about who it was. I'm not sure that we'd named him Rajat. I think I think I came up with the name Rajat while I was writing. Okay, Rajat. That's good. I call him. I always called him Rajat. So <laughs> it's a, uh, one of the one of the people actually, uh, Kristen Justin Moneymaker asks. He said uh, he said have him pronounce the names of the main party in the prison pen dad as well as any okay. of the sorcerer king names <laughs> and the city okay. names. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's say we got um, Rikus, uh huh, Sidira, Neva, Aegis, yeah, Tithian. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Not sure. Um, who else you want in there? Ricard and Calum. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, just ask me about any other names. I'll, I don't pronounce them the way I do. You know, the thing is, it's I think it's perfectly legit, legitimate for people to pronounce them yeah. the way they want to in their own heads. Yep, but yep. a lot of times, people are just interested in how the author, um, what you know, was thinking of it. So yeah, totally. So Brian Dyke says, uh, I don't have any questions, but I want to thank him for giving me a setting where most undead and intelligent. 
our, our intelligent, leaving the DM room to create macabre facsimile of ancient cities that won't quite disappear. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, and that, by the way, was one of the original um, design Ooh. goals that we were set set up at, from the very beginning, mm -hmm. was that to have undead who were intelligent and not easily defeated. Uh-huh. Uh, was one of those design goals like to not have kind of dungeons because uh, that seems to be sort of a major point. There's not very many dungeons. In I the can't set. remember for sure, but I I remember that we just felt like the world we wanted to play the game on the surface more than underground. Mm -hmm. So that probably was one of the original goals or or one of the things that we developed during the year of conception. Mm -hmm. We we sort of went over this one, but. But not not counting the the stuff that you kind of already mentioned, and specifically, you know, we were talking about killing, you know, killing all the sorcerer kings or a bunch of them. But Andy Alexandria writes, um, "What would you change as you look back on your stories?" So, is there any kind of details that you said you went back and looked? You know, was there anything that you um, that you just were like, "Oh man, I missed missed this opportunity to do this thing." Hmm. You know, not really, because I think when I looked went back and looked at it, I saw so much stuff that I did then. Um, because I didn't know any better that I wouldn't do now. I'm not going to try and second guess myself at this point. I think, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I think that it worked out damn well. I think it worked out. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, definitely the way that we anticipated and the way we wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I may have some quibbles with the way I presented things or the language I used or some places where I, you know, felt like the sentences were clunky or something, mm -hmm. but, Overall, you know, I look back at it and I say, you know, that came out of my head. Um, you know, who was I then? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Are you, uh, do you still play D&D? You know, I don't. I've moved to a rural community where I'm surrounded by 70-year-old farmers. <laughs> and, uh, and I drove into the Twin Cities a couple of years ago to try and play in a campaign but it would take me two hours to get you know an hour or two hours of driving to play two hours and mm -hmm. it just eventually became too much so are you still sort of like do you still keep up on you know like on D&D or just on RPGs in general you know I don't really um, I'm mm -hmm. I'm so tied into the fiction angle side of uh -huh. the market mm -hmm. that sure. I tend to get involved with gaming when I'm involved with writing a piece for it mm -hmm. so you know i mean like I, I kind of when i got into halo i i got into halo through the books and the comics mm -hmm. and then i didn't actually play any of the games until i w was contracted to write the books mm -hmm. so it was kind of the, i kind of come into that stuff backwards and i find that that happens a lot is that sure I'll, I'll see oh this looks like a neat world and i'll pick up a, instead of picking up the the rule book to play it because i know that I'm not going to find any seven any 70 year old um, neighbors <laughs> who want to play this game with me. Um, so instead of picking that up, I pick up a piece of the fiction and read that and see if I like. Gotcha. Yeah. So and that's uh, kind of how I get into things these days. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So uh, Thomas Slav Rock asks: Should the next iteration of Dark Sun broaden its scope or see centralized around the table heads? You know, I think. Originally, when we sat down and, and were conceptualizing it, we thought of the Tablelands as being a small part of the world. Mm -hmm. But 
as the only part of the world that we really wanted to concentrate on. You know, there's at the time, and I think this is probably still true from what I've seen, worlds tend to expand outward. You know, it, like you take the Forgotten Realms and then all of a sudden you have Carateur and sure. um, Mastika and, you know, and it, you keep on adding onto the map. And one of our original conceptions of Dark Sun was that we were going to take Tablelands and instead of expanding outward, we were going to try to detail the Tablelands more mm-hmm. so that, you know, you had that seven cities and map and explore each one of those more thoroughly and then the, the regions in between. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go up to the Halfling Forest and, and map and explore those, but you wouldn't really go beyond it. And I know that, that they did, to a certain extent, do that, go beyond it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to me, that's not really part of the original conception. Mm-hmm. You know, that's doing, it the, that's doing it the way that everybody else did it. Mm-hmm. We yeah. were One of the things we were trying to do with Dark Sun was to do it a different way mm-hmm. and that the idea of, of mapping what we already had in more detail mm-hmm. rather than just adding more territory right. was one of the original conceptions and that's one of the things that I kind of wish the, that would would have stuck gotcha right. yeah I mean I think sometimes sometimes that happened uh, you know there's especially with the books that came out you know right after the box set, you know, the Elves of Athos and Dune Trader. Yeah. They, you know, Dune Trader a- added a ton of like little forts and everything everywhere. Lynn Abbey's novel, you know, her she did a couple novels around Uruk, um, yeah. and she added a bunch yeah, of like client, yeah, nice. So mm-hmm. she added a bunch of client cities around or client villages around Uruk. Is that something, you know, kind of like what you're what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Is that is that we were going to try to map in more detail mm-hmm. what was already there? Yeah, that's an, rather than just add more territory. Yeah, I mean that's that's really interesting. Like like you said, like we always, I mean, as as gamers and and as people, we want we want more. And the the fact you're saying that instead of getting more outside, we're just getting more granular. We're going to get more detail inside. That's that's really cool. And I, actually, that is something that that I know that I noticed when I was much much younger was just like we never got out of this area. Is is there a reason? Um, but as you looked in more and more supplements, you got Hey, you have like these oases, or here's more information. This desert does not complain anything. I, like that's that's actually really cool. I, I actually did not. Well, now you said it. Obviously, it's like oh, this is so obvious. But you know, from before, it's just like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah I totally exactly. never thought of that. So Anders Hultstead asks, what is the metaphysical justification for the planar isolation of Athos, and what caused it? Well, I'll tell you what the game justification is. Uh-huh. <laughs> is that anybody who came into Athos was going to get their asses handed to them. <laughs> so, you know, they weren't going to survive very long, mm-hmm. um, you know, except for very high-powered characters. Uh-huh. And we also had psionics, uh, uh-huh. which we weren't sure how that was going to mix with all of the other worlds and all of the other, you know, magic and things from different worlds. So we, I think it was almost a precondition a condition mm-hmm. of actually being able to do Dark Sun that we have that isolation. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Just because we didn't want all of a sudden spell jamming, you know, Dark Sun warriors into the Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point, am I remembering this right? I think I heard about somebody bringing Ravenloft characters into Dark Sun. No, it was actually the other way around. They okay. kind of changed. Uh, so one of the old cities, Kaladne, 
Um, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Went yeah. to Ravenloft. So the the Sorcerer King there went to Ravenloft and was one of the Dark Lords of Ravenloft. Mm. And actually, I take that back. It wasn't the Sorcerer King. It was his head Templar who was actually the Dark Lord of the Ravenloft. Yeah. How did that work out? It. I mean, it's just you know, it's just another cool sort of thing in Ravenloft that was a little bit of a crossover. They did yeah. kind of mess up. Uh, so they screwed up the. So the the the, the Sorcerer King of Kaladnay is Kalad Ma. And so that's a was a male in Dark Sun, um, and they just called it a female in in Ravenloft. So they just kind of switched that, and so they also switched the gender of the Sorcerer King uh, uh, or of the the Templar. So just a little bit of you know like one of those pedantic details. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Ravenloft is probably one of the few places where I think you could really do that kind of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just because Ravenloft has so many kinks of its own. Sure. So aside from the dragon and the Thrykreen, you know, and the Sorcerer Kings themselves, are there any other, uh, so Jean-Nicolas Blanchette asks, are there any other kind of world-changing threats on Dark Sun that we might not think about regularly? Like anything that maybe, maybe alluded to but never, you know, brought up or anything like that? Well, you know, when Sadira was out, I mean, the whole pristine tower, mm-hmm. anything associated with that has the potential to change the world. And... The, you know, I mean, she was walking around there, you know, in the catacombs and people looking at people that were watching her walk by. I think that all of that could, could you know, if if those corpses or those people in stasis, whatever you want to call it, broke out, I think you could have a real change. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure that that would be necessarily the best thing for the storytelling but but the potential is cer- certainly there i mean the one thing about dark sun is that it always has a potential to get more desperate mm-hmm. brian bach asks were there plans to develop the messenger slash realisty storyline if so what was the plot synopsis so do you know was that uh, i guess yeah that was that was part of the books the realisty do you have anything for that i'm trying to remember what the messenger was so the messenger was a comet that visits Athos every 45 years. And in the main book, or in the, in, the, in the campaign setting, this is what it says. It says, every 45 years, a brilliant comet visits Athos. By night, one can read by the messenger's light, and it can be seen clearly in the full light of day. Folklore holds that the messenger visits a dragon every 45 years to deliver to him important information, reconnaissance that the stars have observed since its last visit. There were, I remember back in the 90s, there were some rumors that there was some sort of tie-in with the Relisti, like the messenger was some sort of spaceship that had a bunch of halflings on it or something like that. And I think that was squashed at some point, but do you have any any insight into that at all? Um, You know, I think that since I don't remember it, I don't think we had any solid plans for it. Uh uh But one of the things that, you know, when you you develop a world, you try to give you know, develop an RPG world. Um, It's kind of the opposite of writing a book. You know, writing a book, you only put things in it that impact the plot. Mm -hmm. And when you develop a world, you're putting, you're seeding things for other people to use to develop their own plots. Sure, sure. So you just fill it with with kind of cool things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the cool things that we just kind of threw in that we didn't really have a, a plan for ourselves. But, you know, I mean, if I write five more Dark Sun books, that may, may be what I hang it on. So. 
So <laughs> listeners, you're no. hearing it first, right here. He says he's going to write five more books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, John Edwin Manor asks, uh, are you still practicing martial arts? No, I think I, I probably quit about 10 or 12 years ago. I, I tore an ACL. Ah. And um, at that point, I was like, you know, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> what did you practice? I was a second degree in judo oh. and um, first degree in um, kikido, which is kind of a mixture of taekwondo and hapkido and and boxing. Cool. So did uh, did those practices influence uh, your, your fight scenes? Yeah, I think so. It certainly gave me a more realistic appreciation of what hand-to-hand combat really is like and what it can do. You know, one of the things that I that you always see in movies and, and TV series and even in books and comics is, you know, guys standing there punching each other four or five times and, you know, they're still standing. And that only happens if the people doing the punching don't know how to punch. Right. For sure. you know, it's, it's one of the things that that I, I, you know, I'm kind of keenly aware of is, you know, you see this whole thing on Facebook and the social media about punching Nazis. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, sure. A lot of times somebody goes up and cold cocks somebody and yeah, they do get up. But anybody who's really been involved in martial arts or has been involved in real fights understands that you could kill somebody punching them once. Right. Um, and I think that the martial arts and practicing that gave me a real appreciation for just how devastating that kind of thing can be. I mean, you know, realistically, hand-to-hand combat, if somebody's really going at it hard and knows what they're doing, you know, it's going to last five, ten seconds, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I try to incorporate that into my all of my action scenes. It's like I try to incorporate that kind of realistic, deadly efficiency, you know, into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, um, Piotr Frank says, uh, Dark Sun represents, in comparison to other D&D worlds, a very mature setting. It incorporates issues like slavery, abuse of political power, nihilism, among other philosophical teachings, the guilt of destroying the biosphere of a planet by sheer lust for power, mortality, and a loss in a savage world, and even dealing with relationships, recalling the Rikus, Sidira, and Neva triangle. Uh, do you yeah. think this attempt of a grown-up fantasy setting is the reason for the diehard Dark Sun fan base? Or is it the reason why Athos did not reach the same popularity as more Tolkien-esque worlds? I think both. I think that the thing that, that Dark Sun fans like about it is that it does go where their worlds don't go. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it talks about hard issues and, and you know, and, and it takes a look at them. And I think that that's been one of the things that keeps people coming back. I know you know, when I go to a convention, God, I don't know. I mean, how many years ago was it I wrote Dark Sun? But I can't go to a convention anywhere mm-hmm. um, without having people come up and talk to me about it, you know, even after all of these years. Um, I've been at conventions where nobody talked to me about Star Wars and, like, five people talked to me about about Dark Sun. <laughs> um, you know, nice. so it has that in kind of enduring, hardcore readership that I think really makes me proud. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I think back on it and, and, and I think about how many people are still enjoying it and they're still devoted to it. And it's like, it, that's a pretty neat thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I tell the story, I'm sure that the fans of this podcast have heard me tell the story 
seven times out of the seven podcasts we've we've done. But uh, it's the first thing that kind of hooked me into into really running AD and D because 1991 is right when I was like, uh, I'm looking for something to run, and I was like, oh, a new setting is coming out, and uh, and I just dove into it, and it was you know I've been a fan ever since. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I. I... It's weird. I mean, I have so many Dark Sun stories. Um, you know, I went to Italy to a convention at Luca after I'd written, I don't know, eight or nine Star Wars books. And I, I it was right in the middle of the height of my popularity as a Star Wars author. And I thought, you know, I got over there and I thought everybody's going to want to talk about Star Wars. And I got there and all they wanted to talk about was Dark Sun. <laughs> it, it was incredible. I, I, pro- I probably sold, I don't know, I probably signed... 2000 dark sun books while I was there. <laughs> you know. And uh-huh. and I don't, I didn't sign I bet I didn't sign 100 Star Wars books. It was, <laughs> it was really something. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. All right, uh Pablo D Alpazar asks, uh what happens if a DD enters Athos? Does it lose its divine powers or what what do you think would happen? Yeah, I think I think we'd ruled that it does. Okay. I'd be surprised if that's not actually in the rule book, but but if it isn't, I'm putting it in now. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's um, one of our key design concepts was that we weren't going to cross over deities and have mm-hmm. deities coming into Dark Sun, um, mm-hmm. just because of you know the potential for just disrupting the whole balance, the game balance. Right, right. I think our justification for that was the deity gains power through worship, worshippers. Mm-hmm. The people in Dark Sun aren't going to worship a damn thing. <laughs> right. You know, so that's they their sorcerer kings. They don't trust supernatural powers. I mean, you know, yeah. super powerful beings are not things that they admire. So that sort of uh, that that brings a question to my mind. Like in Rom, the Abalashre was is like you know she puts herself up as a vizier to some god and sort of forces the people to sort of worship this god. But it mentions that you know most people kind of don't really believe that. So it, it seems like that's sort of not only do people I guess what what's your view? It kind of it seems to me that most people in Dark Sun don't believe in any sort of higher powers. Is that is that sort of the the default that you think, or do some people sort of believe you know we're, uh, superstitionally? I think that people have a much more you know elemental powers in Dark Sun are the only kind of deific powers that exist, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's a reflection of the whole idea that. People are closer to nature, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and that when they, you know, you, you think about the American Indian concept of a deity, you know, it, it's like it lives in the grass and the trees and the, and the mountain and the rocks. And that's the kind of deities that, that people in Dark Sun believe in. It's not really a deity. It's just a, a power. Uh-huh. And so in, in that same thing, was that sort of one of the things that you guys had to had to change was the was the idea originally that like there would be no kind of divine power, and then did like the marketers or whoever say like, well, you gotta have something, you know, some sort of clerics. Yeah, I think that that's was exactly how that happened. I think <laughs> that they wanted us to, you know, they didn't want us not to have clerics. Plus, how do you heal? Yeah, um, right. But we we kind of held our line on on gods. And, right. You know, I don't recall whether. We originally had no gods and, and compromised to go with um, elementals mm-hmm. um, or whether we just had the elementals from the beginning. I mean, because the elemental influences are very much a dark sun thing. 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, Shane Hensley wrote Earth, Air, Fire, and Water, which sort of detailed the, the elementals and stuff like that. I don't know if you recall any of that. One of the things that he sort of, that was, that was included in that was, was the description of, of the sorcerer kings and how they grant power had something to do with like a, a an elemental vortex in the you know in the inner planes that allowed them to siphon the power did you have any sort of anything in your mind that uh, you know how the sorcerer kings granted their magic to to their templars i don't recall that i had actually you know I, that sounds like it would be more along in tim's territory okay i don't recall the elemental vortex theory um, i don't think that was part of the original concept but i don't think that it's really in contradiction to what we were working on yeah it doesn't contradict it i you know, i always felt like it was sort of an explanation uh yeah. because what what he sort of what he sort of said was that all like the elemental vortexes were were living things and they all mm-hmm. they all died after the sorcerer kings had already kind of grafted them to themselves and therefore no other nobody else could could do such a thing nobody else could could grant powers uh yeah so that was, that you know, was I think that I think the way to look at that is is that it's one way to look at it, and it's you know it doesn't it doesn't contradict anything that that I think we did. So it's a it's a as good an explanation as any. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the way I looked at it was you know the sorcerer kings are just kind of a battery. I mean they they suck up a lot of life energy, mm-hmm. and then they can disperse it as they wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things they did in fourth edition. In order to sort of divorce, I, th- I think in order to sort of, you know, fourth edition D&D sort of had the idea that, you know, player characters are, should be pretty autonomous. And so they, they, they kind of wanted to take away the idea that like a sorcerer king could just like be like, oh, you're not going to have any spells today. Um, and so what they sort of changed it to be was that this, the Templars were sort of imbued with this magic through whatever rituals. And they, they were what's called warlocks in fourth edition. And they, they also have warlocks in fifth edition. But I think that, that a warlock sort of makes a pact with a greater being uh, rather than sort of worshipping them. Um, and that sort of makes sense in the fiction. What do you think uh, about something like that? Well, I think you guys would have to tell me whether <laughs> you think it works. Um, I kind of, in fourth edition, I, I kind of took one look at it and decided, <laughs> too, too much like miniatures for me. Yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't really get into it. You know, I was more, I kind of came back into being aware of what was going on with with 5th edition. And I think that there was a lot of flexibility built into the system to look at it however Mm -hmm. you wanted to. Mm -hmm. So as long as it works within those confines, I I would be, I'd be okay with it, you know. Mm -hmm. If if it works, it works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah. it kind of makes sense and it doesn't sound like it contradicts anything from the original spirit Uh of of the game or of the setting, so... Yeah, I've got a character in my 5th edition Dark Sun game that I run on my Patreon. Um, my friend Matt has a character named Slish, and he, he's a warlock, but he's a, a water warlock. So he's pretty much like a, a water cleric, but he just uses his, his powers come from a pact that he made with, with water, which, which again kind of makes, makes a little more sense. Uh, as so far is as he, on Dark Sun, is he very powerful? I'm trying to figure out whether... okay. Does being a waterlock warlock in Dark Sun give you a lot of power or, or none at all? <laughs> so he, all of his powers are still sort of like dealing with water. So he reflavors everything. So instead of like a, 
uh, what is like a low level spell where you shoot f- fire out of your hands. Anyway, so instead of instead of shooting fire, he basically makes people scorching like rain. lose water. Yeah, yeah, like scorching rain. Like he makes people lose water and stuff like that. Um, oh, yeah. But That'd so he's not. Good. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 just flavored. So he's really the same sort of power level as everybody else, just the the flavor. But uh, yeah. I think it works well. Um, yeah, it sounds like it. That's a good. Sounds like a good use of it. Yeah. Let's see. So Pablo, let's see. He also asks, now that there are only three sorcerer kings, what do you think would sort of happen to the cities, slave tribes? So, you know, would it be like more decay of civilization? Or do you think like we're, we're sorcerer kings holding that together? Or do you think it would be a better time for Athasians? My guess is that it would be a mixture. You know, in mm-hmm. some places you're going to have a strong leader who emerges, normal mortal, mortal leader who emerges and can pull people together and get them organized and and make things work. And in other places, you'll just have warring factions, like strong men and warlords kind of take over and, you know, civilization will deteriorate. So Mm -hmm. I think that I would say that's probably one place where it's really holding together and three places where it's falling apart. Nice. So the second book that came out for Dark Sun was Dragon Kings, and it kind of talked about advanced beings and how you know, the, the, the wizard's scientists turned into dragons. But it also mentioned, you know, how wizard scientists or preserver scientists turned into Evangians and how cleric scientists could turn into elementals. Did you ever imagine any sort of advanced beings, you know, like those to antagonize the sorcerer kings, like in, in the story? No, I didn't. And I probably wouldn't have put them in the story. I know Dragon Kings was... Kind of Tim's baby, mm-hmm. and you know I think he felt a need to have that kind of um, relationship to a higher deities, you know, to higher powers mm-hmm. in the world. But I never did. I'm I'm not I'm not a guy who's who looks to a higher power to solve my problems mm-hmm. or to make the world a better place. You know, I'm mm-hmm. kind of you know much more of a pragmatic guy. Um, gotcha. So I remember, you know, thinking, well, if Tim and I were running two different, dark, were running Dark Sun campaigns, uh-huh. it would be two different flavors. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And and Tim's Tim's would have more of an emphasis on higher powers than mine would. Doesn't mean that that you know, I mean, it's just there's a lot of room in any world for different yeah. styles. So. Right. You know, my so, style would would not have it, but but his mm-hmm. were, you know. Sure. So that sort of makes me think of like in the revised box set, you know, they expanded the world, which obviously, you know, you've, you've already talked about, but they mentioned, you know, there's two other Sorcerer Kings in that box set. Was that based off of stuff that you guys had created that didn't include, or was that just something that they, they kind of created whole cloth? I'm not sure that I ever saw the, exp- okay. the revised box set. So tell me who the Sorcerer Kings were. So there is, um, this sort of goes, you know, relates to, to what we were just talking about in that there is a, um, there's another city state called Kern and it's ruled by Ornus who is sort of, you know, he, he separated himself from the seven cities because he actually regrets what he did during the cleansing wars. He was uh, the lizard man executioner and he regrets what he did during the cleansing wars. And he's sort of ceased becoming a defiler and has become a, um, an Evangian. Uh, and then the other one was, uh, Gosh, can't think of his name. Uh, Daskinor is his name, and he's sort of like a paranoid sorcerer king. So that's why he, you know, they kind of gave reasons why they were sort of separated from the main tablelands. Yeah, so they're outside the tablelands. Yeah. Well, you know, um, 
I think one of the things that you have to recognize when you do a role-playing game, you know, and set up a, a you know, a, a game that you're going to like let loose on the world mm-hmm. is that people are going to take it in directions that they want to. True. And I think that that's just fine. It's not what I would have done with it. I like the idea of the paranoid sorcerer king. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I would do. But the Avangian sorcerer king is is not something that I would do because my own view of power is not something that gives you it makes you any better human being or any any higher mm-hmm. order of person. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I pretty much believe that the more power you have, the more corrupt you're likely to be. Right, right. So from Twitter, Guthe asked, uh, have, you, have you heard any of the audio book versions of the prison pentad? And if so, what did you think of Ray Porter's performances of the characters? <laughs> you know, I haven't. Uh-huh. Um, I know that they're out on the Audible, but I haven't actually been able to listen to them. Hmm. So but uh-huh. that's something I should try to do. I, my, um, I tend to listen to audio books when I'm like on a long drive somewhere. Yeah. And I do them with CDs, so I don't think that the Dark Sun stuff was released on CD. I think it was all Audible, mm. and, you know, down, downloadable files. Which, being an old fart, I just don't do very often. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So David Hall says, oh, he asked a bunch of questions, but we've answered most of them. Uh, however, here's a good one. This probably is the same answer as the, as the messenger which is to say that's probably just a thread, but in case it's not, what happened at Bodak? Bodak was a, it's a, ru- uh, a, a ruins. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can read the little section, but it's probably the same thing. Like you just left a thread out there, but let's see. So it says Bodak. Oh, line. Yeah, I'll have to look at, I, I can't remember Bodak. I, the name is familiar. So when I think that's where it's ringing a bell. So I'm thinking that I actually may have had something planned there. So I think, wasn't that where Sacha or Wyan was from? I think one of them were from Bodak. I want to say. Yeah. Uh, let me let's see. I was let me hear. I'm a, I've got the dark sun. Yeah. So here I can yep. read it. So it says uh, Bodak lying at the tip of a peninsula, projecting into one of the great inland silt basins, was undoubtedly one of the mightiest cities of the ancients. Its ruins covered many square miles of the peninsula. When you stand at the edge of the silt basin, you can see its towers rising above the silt for many miles beyond. Unfortunately, Bodak and the surrounding territories are not good places to linger. As the crimson sun goes down, thousands of undead zombies and skeletons crawl out of the cellars, sewers, and hidden dungeons, then begin scouring the city and the surrounding countryside. If you're here after dark, you will spend the entire night fighting one long pitched battle. I've talked to those who say that the undead are controlled by a powerful defiler who is using them to keep treasure hunters away from the city while he systematically loots them. Others claim that the undead are the original inhabitants of the city, and they cannot rest because there is some terrible secret buried in the heart of the ancient city that they do not want discovered. In either case, if you go to Bodak, be prepared for an intense battle against this gruesome army. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, something happened there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, I can't really remember what it was, but it had to do with Pixies. And, and Pixies, of course, have lots of secrets. Interesting. Uh... Yeah. So I would say that uh, the second hint that I gave in that in that passage is closer to the truth but I don't know that I ever actually worked it all out mm-hmm. <laughs> oh interesting interesting yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so yeah that, but there's a reason I'm, I remembered Bodak and it was it had to do with pixies and what happens when you try to kill them huh cool 
so as I'm looking at the PDF right here, I'm looking at Caledonay too. In Caledonay, uh, as we were saying, was sort of the place that, that had some ties to Ravenloft, but it was also, you know, a, you know, was a Sorcerer King city at one point. Same with Yarmuk. Do you remember, do you remember anything about those? So Caledonay was sort of, uh, kind of felt like the, you know, how each of the seven cities or each of the city-states was, was a sort of, you know, analog to a real world place, more or less. And Caledonay sort of was the Egyptian one. Do you remember anything, anything about that or, or Yarmuk? So Yarmuk is, there's even, there's not much written about it at all. There's a uh, you know, paragraph here and there's a bit in like one of the adventures. Uh, there's a bit of location there, but no, nothing is really talked about as far as like a uh, culture or anything there. Yeah. One of those unexplored, you know, DMs can have yeah. it in the end. You know, I think, I think that was just something I, I left out there for, for somebody else to play with. Cool. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm realizing that I only had like what, three queens. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Rodrigo Brinca asks, Nox struck me as a somewhat complex and powerful character whose motivations were really hard to understand and never fully disclosed. His defeat was quite unexpected. Can you explain what he had in mind for the character, what you had in mind for the character? Well, Nock was, again, one of those things that I, one of those characters that I kind of invented on the spur of the moment as I was writing. I mean, we knew that we were going to, we knew that the story was going to take us into the Halfling forest. And, but we didn't really have, didn't have everything all mapped out mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what was going to happen to him. And so as I was writing the halflings, you know, I kind of came up with, I needed a character that would fill, fulfill the role of the, of the hero. But uh, I, I guess I'm not sure what, read the question to me again. I'm not sure what he's um, asking about. Nox can you explain what you had in mind for the character? Uh, so it just sounded like it says his, his defeat was unexpected. And can you explain what you had in mind for the character? So, Maybe was I'm trying to remember how he was defeated. Yeah, I, I don't really remember either. But like, did you have <laughs> sort of further? Did you have sort of further plans for him, and then you just decided he need needed to die? Well, for you know, I think that you know, Nock was. I mean, he's a cannibal, and and you know, he's a treacherous little halfling, but he also represents the power of nature. You know, the healing power of nature, or the true power of nature. I mean, you know, he lives in the one forest that the Tablelands actually still have, the one place that's still verdant. And so he's kind of a, a symbol of, of the wild power of nature. And his, um, his defeat, you, you know, he, he kind of basically came down and sacrificed himself in order to, he, he was making a sacrifice in order to join the battle. And because of that, I think, um, you know, you, you can kind of see him as doing something serving a purpose that was higher and higher than himself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of run, running out of questions here. So Brent Wellborn, which will probably be our fi- final question unless we have some follow-ups here, but Brent says, I would like to ask Troy if he ever had any plans for Tithian after the Sorellian storm. Did you foresee Tithian becoming free one day and possibly gaining powers from his time in the storm? No, I think that Tithian basically is is a victim of his own karma mm-hmm. you know he was he he was so hungry for power that he was willing to do anything to get it and in doing so he trapped himself and i i, I think that's kind of the moral lesson of 
his character arc. Nice. Um, is that he just, you know, he he wanted it so he wanted it so badly, and he was willing to do literally anything to to mm-hmm. get it, um, mm-hmm. and that that brings with it its own punishment. Hmm. That's kind of the um, it's kind of his own imprisonment, and it's not something you ever really escape from when you right. turn that dark yeah. and you you become that evil. You, mm-hmm. There's no coming back, and that's kind of what Tithian's imprisonment represents. It's just that you know he's he's um, he's gone way too far, and he'll mm-hmm. never ever come back from that. Mm. Nice. So that's all the questions I have. You have any more questions, Wayne? Uh, no, I've ins- <laughs> I've quite enjoyed my time listening to Troy. And to be honest, I'm 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 very surprised on how much you remember. I mean, you know, <laughs> obviously you wrote the books and whatnot, but it's the amount of detail that you're remembering is is quite impressive. <laughs> it's quite impressive. Well, you know, great to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I remember the process a lot better than I do the details. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, remembering Knock and remembering what happened to him. I remember writing him, and I remember who he was. Mm-hmm. But I'm sitting here trying to remember how he died, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and um, I'm not remembering it. You know, I can't remember whether Rikus got him or whether he died in the arena. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. Well, it's been and it's, it's been, and it's not in the wiki. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Troy, is there is there anything uh, anything you wanna you know anecdotes or just anything you wanna wanna tell the Dark Sun fans out there? You know, I just wanna say thank you for staying interested and staying in love with it so long it really has been one of the highlights of my writing career is just to to realize how many people really love it and how how it has not only kind of held its own but seems to be kind of coming back and make coming back stronger than ever before nice yeah yeah that really really warms my heart makes me you know when there you have those long dark nights when you wonder God, should I ever have been a writer? You, know, you look back and say, yeah, I think this is one of those things that says mm-hmm. I should have been. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to Troy, you can also hear him on The Tome Show. He did a uh, Verdant Passage book club. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll leave the link for that in the notes, but that's definitely a good one. Yep. He really goes into detail about that one book, so definitely check that out. Also, is there anything you want to talk about? What you what what's coming out recently, or what's coming out soon for you, Troy? Anything you want to yeah, sure. Well, recently I've been writing in the Halo universe. I wrote two books about a character named Veda Lopez. Um, that's a female detective set in the far future who tangles with the Spartans. And most recently, my next book to come out is um, Halo: Silent Storm, which is the story of John One Seventeen, the Master Chief before he becomes the Master Chief. It, mm-hmm. He's only 15 in the story, and it kind of details his road to becoming a good leader. Mm-hmm. So looking forward to that release and, and seeing how people like that. Great. When does that come out? That comes out on September 4th. All right, September 4th. Yep. Check it out. Yeah, check out my – you can check me out on Facebook mm-hmm. or Twitter, and there will be you know promotions on it. Mm. Or um, Silent Storm on both of those. Excellent. All right. We'll put those. Up uh, in the, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. We'll get your we'll get your Facebook and Twitter and make sure we put them out there for you. But with that, I th- I think I think we're about done here. Uh, Wayne, where can we find you online? 
you can find me listening to on my own podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can go on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Visionary Comms. Uh, otherwise, Facebook or G+, basically. <laughs> uh, and Robert, yourself. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Radu76. It's R-A-D-D-U-76. Uh, you can find me in the Dark Sun Facebook group, the Dark Sun Google Plus group, at athis.org. You can email me at radu at athis.org. It's R-A-D-D-U at athis.org. And then if you want to play some Dark Sun with me, I run a Patreon where I run a Dark Sun game every month. So check that out. It's patreon.com slash Robert Aducci. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, well, thanks for having me, guys. It has been a real pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, Troy, the, uh, the pleasure is absolutely ours. It's been great basically talking to the creator of like Robert and I's favorite setting. So we, we talk every month about this, but I mean, you, you're the one that, you know, <laughs> this just, just, it's your name on the cover. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yep, I lived it for a year and a half, I guess. It was wonderful. Great, it's great. Wonderful time making that up. Great. Well, thanks, Troy. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks so much. Bone Stony Obsidian is hosted by the Misdirected Mark Network, the media arm of Encoded Designs.